Amen. We are mindful of the words of the Apostle Paul in the first chapter of the book of Romans when he said in 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Hallelujah. We're not ashamed of Christ, and that is the background to our study in the letter that is titled Philippians in our Bible. Please turn there with us this morning to the third chapter of this wonderful letter, this epistle that is connected to the time when the Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison for the sake of the gospel, that he would not be ashamed of the gospel. And in this letter of encouragement, he is writing to the church at Philippi. He has some very pertinent and very timely exhortation to the church in every age. We want to title our study this morning in connection with this chapter, Rejoicing in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? The Apostle Paul could have well made this the major theme of the entire letter. Each chapter is just inundated with the term joy or rejoicing and, 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 and thinking about him being in prison, and not just any prison, but a maritime prison in the city of Rome, one that you can go to today. You can actually visit today. You can see it. You can see the place where the Apostle Paul was imprisoned. And what's curious about that is um, it, it, it's a circular um, arrangement, uh, and, it, and it has a, a, about a four-foot hole in the top of a 15-foot ceiling through which they would, they would allow the prisoner to, to descend onto the hard, stony floor of that maritime prison. It was very cold in the winter and very hot, in the summer, it was a, a place where you could be consumed by loneliness and, and maybe frustration and maybe a lot of discouragement. Still to this day, there's iron hooks on the wall through which the chains of the prisoners would be bound. And we can just imagine the Apostle Paul being one among the many that were kept in that very place. But instead of the Apostle Paul mourning over his circumstances, he's going to write a letter that encourages us to rejoice in the Lord, no matter what our circumstances might be. In this chapter, we, we find that there's, there's going to be three things, three main uh, points that the Apostle Paul is going to make with reference to our ability to rejoice in the Lord. The first is that of salvation itself. That salvation through Jesus Christ and through the shed blood of Christ on our behalf grants us saving grace. Salvation. What a wonderful, wonderful theme. The second is going to deal with the practical aspect of sanctification the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus didn't just die for us on the cross, but by the sending of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, he's, he's uh, uh, embracing an ongoing work in the life of every believer. And then the, the third part of this chapter is dealing with what we call glorification, uh, a time when uh, the people of God will be glorified and forever with the Lord. So there's some reasons that you and I are given to rejoice truly from the heart this, this morning. I want to notice this in, in verse um, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 3. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. And again in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Finally, my brethren, in the closing aspect of this letter, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, is indeed not grievous, but for you it is safe. 
There's some things I'm going to write to you that are written with a desire for your safety, the safety of your mind, the safety of your legacy, uh, the safety of your heritage in Christ. I, I, the things that I'm writing to you are extremely safe or secure. He says, uh, verse 2, I want you to beware of dogs, beware of evildoers, and beware of the concision. Um, the Apostle Paul says, I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to include a warning here that you, you beware of those that do not know Christ. Uh, in a Jewish context, the word goyim is dog, and, and it was, uh, it was a, a, a euphemism that was used for unbelieving people or unsaved people. He says, beware of them. Be aware that they're in the world because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a sin-cursed world. He's not ignoring reality in order to bring us to the level of rejoicing. Neither can we. We need to be aware. Be aware of the dangers that lie in the hearts of the unbelievers. Beware of evil workers those that are actively engaged in undermining the foundational principles of a society. We have that in our nation today, do we not? Those that are dedicated every step of the way to destroy this very nation because they don't like what this nation stands for. They're evil workers. He says, I want you to be aware of that. Yes, I want you to be aware uh, of the concision. He's using a word here that's very strict in its application uh, because the word concision literally means to mutilate, to mutilate the flesh. He's, he's, he's saying those among the Jewish people that claim that circumcision is a right to salvation, in other words, they're saying if you don't become a Jew, there's no way you can be saved. If, if you don't... Uh, go through the formal or the, uh, the ceremonial aspects of Judaism, there's no hope for you. There's no salvation for those that are uncircumcised. uncircumcised. But he uses, a, he uses a, a word here that's very strict, concision, mutilate. He says, the acts of circumcision that are not with respect to faith are nothing but mutilation. The cutting of the flesh. He says, I want you to be aware of the danger of works salvation or works related salvation. Someone that says that, that salvation is by Jesus Christ and something else. He says, be aware of that. So he's not trying to ignore the dangers that are obvious in the culture in which these words are written any more than you and I can. But he's saying in the midst of these circumstances, in the midst of these uh, dark deeds, in the midst of this error and ignorance and ignominy, I want you to rejoice as believers this morning. Verse 3, why, Paul? For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. National Jews could also be spiritual pagans while regeneration makes national Gentiles actually spiritual Jews. We're spiritually children of the covenant. Because of the work of grace, because of the sovereignty of God, because of the uh, providential power that belongs only to God, we are able to rejoice in him this morning. We have no confidence in human ability or human worthiness. If you're here this morning thinking that I've got to work myself into a worthy condition before I can experience salvation, the Apostle Paul says don't do that. We're, we're not going to have confidence of our salvation through the deeds of the flesh. We're going to be trusting the merit of Jesus Christ alone. 
He says in verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinks that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now the Apostle Paul is going to share some of the facts that relate to his past. His past identity as a religious Jew. As, as not only a religious Jew, but one of the brightest stars in uh, that generation of thinkers, of, of, of students of the law, of someone that was zealous beyond measure for the law of Moses. He says, if you think you're, you've got something to boast in, let me tell you something. I've even got more than that. I, I, I even have more to boast in than uh, the religious uh, elites that are claiming uh, divine right of salvation by their own works. I, I, have, I have more to boast in than they do. He says, I'm, I'm wanting you to rejoice. And the word rejoice comes from a Greek term that means to boast with exultant joy. That's the definition. To rejoice or boast with exultant joy. Exultant meaning praiseworthy joy. A joy that brings praise to the name of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. He's, he's not talking about just being a happy person. Just being a smiley person. He's not talking about that. Because there are many circumstances in this world that can make us unhappy, right? There are many things that relate to happiness that can only be acquired by our circumstances. If our circumstances are good, then I'm a happy per person. I'm a happy camper, as we say. But spiritual joy is not dependent upon circumstance. Spiritual joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's not dependent upon external forces. It's something that is God, God has given His people internally. So that even when I'm in a Roman prison, even when I'm destitute, even when I am uh, separated from the people that I care about the most in the world, even when my circumstances are dire, and I may even be uh, killed by the commandment of this wicked uh, emperor of Rome, any day, I'm going to have joy. Because my joy is related to the perfect work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That's what he's calling us to. And he's rejoicing in that. He's exulting. He's praising the Lord himself. How is it, Paul, that you can, uh, you can have more to boast about? He goes into a little bit of his history, uh, a little glimpse into the past record of the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now that's significant from the standpoint of the Jewish mind. Because remember in Leviticus 12 and, 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 and Genesis chapter 17 and many other Old Testament uh, um, ver uh, verses we could turn to this morning, God commanded circumcision of the firstborn. He commanded circumcision of every male to uh, reflect the covenant relationship that he has with the nation of Israel. It was different from the pagan nations around. Uh, they were distinguished in this way. And God used this to show the relationship that he had with the nation of Israel. And he commanded it to be done specifically on the eighth day. And the Apostle Paul says, guess what? I, I, wasn't, um, I, I wasn't a convert later in life to Judaism and then experienced circumcision. Um, I was not forced to have circumcision upon me. But according to the very law of Moses, I was circumcised the eighth day according to the commandment of God because I had a Jewish mother and father that trained me up to recognize the significance of the law of God. Now that's a, that's a good point. Paul is making points about how he has something to boast in if anybody else does. 
He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. My parents, my parentage were actually Jews. Of the tribe of Benjamin, do you remember, children, do you remember what uh, tribe the first king of Israel came from? Who was the first king of Israel? Saul, right? What, what tribe did he come from? Benjamin. You see, Benjamin and Judah were, were the two tribes chosen by God to reflect the monarchy, the Davidic rule over the people of God. And it's interesting to me that when Israel divided, ten tribes went north. The ten most populous tribes went north and made their capital Samaria. That there were two tribes that stayed uh, loyal to the covenant that they made with God. Judah and Benjamin. They were loyal to Jehovah God. He says, now that's significant. That's significant. I was circumcised the eighth day. Right? That's significant. I, I was uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. Loyal to Jehovah. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means literally that he was trained up speaking and writing and reading in Hebrew. Now why would that be significant? Why, why would it be significant for him to mention the language Hebrew? That's exactly right. Because that's what the Old Testament was written in. It was written in Hebrew. The five books of Moses were written in direct Hebrew. All of the law and the prophets were in Hebrew. So it's very significant, you see. What he's pointing out are areas in his own life experience, in his past, that he could point to and say, you know, if anything could make me worthy of salvation, surely it would be something like this. Oh, I've got something to brag about. Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law. Now watch this. As touching the law, a Pharisee. Now what in the world? Remember that there were three separate, uh, distinct parts to the religious uh, identity of first century Israel, first century Judea. There were the Sadducees, remember them? The Sadducees uh, who did not believe in the resurrection or angels, no wonder they're sad, you see. There were them. And the Sadducees rejected the prophets. Did you know that? They, they only recognized the five books of Moses. So they were a very limited part of, of the religious identity of Judaism. But in, the, in as much as they were uh, of that sect of uh, uh, Jewish life, they were very wealthy. These were the people that were commercializing Judaism, commercializing religion. They're the ones that would profit greatly from the sale of uh, livestock to offer on the day of, uh, uh, on the Passover. They're the ones that were aggravated the most by Jesus challenging them and overturning the money changers and, and telling them that they made the, uh, the house of God into a den of thieves. He was actually talking to the Sadducees. And, and we read where there were also lawyers and scribes. These were individuals that were highly educated. The, these were the PhDs, if you will, of that culture. And they were entrusted with making written copies of the Word of God. They were very, very um, uh, respected uh, individuals in the first century. And they were a part of the Sanhedrin court also. But then you come to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were uh, specifically identified as the most holy of all three groups. There were, they were the ones, uh, uh, the word Pharisee literally means separate one. In other words, uh, 
they, they actually believed that they were without sin. In Luke chapter 18, remember that Pharisee that was praying to himself, by the way, not to God. I thank thee, Father, that I am not like other men. Hmm? Say what? I thank thee, Father, that thou, uh, that I am not as other men. I, I uh, do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I pay tithe. I, I fast twice in the week, and I thank you most of all. I'm not like that publican over yonder. I'm so glad that I'm a, a sinless man. You hearing me, Lord, up there? You hearing me? I'll help you anytime you need it. Just, just let me know. He was a Pharisee. And Jesus said, this, this man was not justified. He, he, he identifies that Pharisee as an unsaved man in the Word of God. And yet, you and I would look at his life, and we would see him fasting twice in the week. We would see him tithing of everything. If he had ten tomatoes on his plant, he would take one and bring it to the house of God. He tithed of every part of his life in order to gain favor with God. The Apostle Paul said, I was that. I was, I was a member not of those Sadducees. Not of those Essenes and uh, scribes and lawyers, but of the Pharisees, the top echelon of Judaism. Much more could be said on that. But he had something to boast in if he was talking to Jews. They would say, hmm, boy, this, this is somebody. Ooh, what a, what a cool guy. In verse 6, he says, concerning zeal, you want to know something about zeal? I was entrusted by the Sanhedrin court to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. I persecuted the church. And then he says, as touching righteousness, here's the bottom line. Righteousness, or could we say salvation, which is in the law, blameless. I was like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus Christ and said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? And, and he, he went through the law and, and the young man said, Well, these things have I kept from my youth up. What more would I lack? What he was trying to receive was affirmation that all of these good works that he had done obligated God to save his soul. But remember what Jesus said? One thing you lack. Oh, he could have said a bunch there. But he said, one, just, just one thing. One thing will keep you out of heaven. Did you know that? One sin will keep you out of heaven. Did you know that? One sin was all that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden that caused him to be rejected. Just one. One abnormality. One sin. One fault. One failure. One mistake. That's all you get. That makes you worthy of damnation. One thing thou lackest, go and sell all thou hast and give it unto the poor and then come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away sorry, sorrowing. Why? Because he had many possessions. What Jesus was doing was identifying the sin of his heart. He was covetous. He, he, wasn't wanting to he wasn't wanting to separate himself from his stuff. He thought his stuff was more important than Jesus. He, he, he thought the reason that I want to serve God is so that I can get his stuff. Do you remember in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus was giving the parable about, about the uh, uh, prodigal son? Did you know that the, the subject of that parable is not the son that went to the pig pen. That's not the object of that parable. The object of that parable is the son that stayed home. He's the real prodigal. Because he's the one that said to his own father, he's the one that said to his own papa, 
I have never disobeyed you. I have done everything just right. I have done this and I've done that. And you have never uh, killed the fatted calf for me. You've never given me that fine robe. You've never done for me the things that you have done for this son. He didn't even call him his brother. <laughs> this one. <laughs> that went and, 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 and just messed up his life totally. You see what Jesus was doing was introducing the Pharisees to the condition of their heart. Their hearts were not able to rejoice in the Lord because they were trusting in their own works. They were trusting in their own worthiness. And, if you, and let me tell you something. If you this morning are trusting in your works to save you from hell, you're going to be filled with a lot of misery and a lot of sorrow. And you'll never know the joy that Paul has experienced in his own life in the writing of this letter. He says, yeah, I thought I was blameless. <laughs> I was a real Pharisee, you see. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now, I want you to understand how Paul is using this terminology as it relates to salvation. He uses two terms here that are accounting terms. Gain and loss. Gain and loss. The word gain there is translated from a Greek word that means to profit or to possess an asset. In other words, he's describing a ledger. And on one side of the ledger, there's assets. There's things that are gained. And on the other side of the ledger, there's a, a loss. Things that are um, in um, hock or in uh, uh, danger of being lost. Uh, the, there's a plus and a minus on each side of this ledger. And the Apostle Paul says, look at all the things I gained. Look at all the things that I could put under the gain column, the profit column, the asset column. And over here on the loss column, I don't have anything over here. I just have all of this self-righteousness on this side of the table. But he said, then I met Christ. And those things that I considered gain, I now consider loss. I now consider uh, not an asset. I, I now consider them as things that are not worthy of salvation, not worthy of God. He's speaking in terms that they would understand. And he goes on, he says, yea, doubtless, in verse 8, he says, yea, doubtless. He's going to double down on it. Yea, doubtless, I count all things, whatever you want to mention, whatever good deed, whatever good asset, whatever good profit you might possess in your own personality or in your own unredeemed humanness, whatever that might be, I'm going to consider it as a loss on this ledger of salvation. For what? What do you... What do you can, if you count all of that as loss, what do you count as gain? He says, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, like trash that should be thrown away, that I might win Christ. When he speaks of knowledge here, he's not talking about a knowledge of uh, concerning Christ, you know, it's one thing to know about Jesus. There's a lot of people that know about Jesus. There's a lot of rulers, wicked men uh, in our government that will from time to time mention the name Jesus, that they, they, they uh, uh, believe that Jesus was a communist and Jesus was a socialist. And, and, if, you don't, uh, and if you don't believe in uh, abortion, you're, you're not uh, following the example of Jesus, that kind of uh, heresy and that that's going on all, all the time you hear about it all the time but it's one thing to know about Jesus and it's another thing to know Jesus to know about his historicity that he actually existed but to know him as Lord and Savior 
There's a totally different frame of reference. And the Apostle Paul is drawing that distinction for us this morning. Just because somebody says, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, doesn't mean that they know Jesus. Because the devils believe and what? Tremble. You, you following me? Uh, the devil even knows that Jesus is the Son of God, let me tell you. But he doesn't worship him. He hates him. And he hates you if you love Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, in my column, there's only one thing that I'm going to put in my gain column, my asset column, my profit column, and that's the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Hallelujah. That's the righteousness that she's rejoicing in that is imputed to him through Christ. <laughs> and watch this. Verse 9. I love this. This is the gospel, friends. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Faith is the conduit through which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to my soul. That I may know him. Oh, don't you love this verse? That I may know him. Paul, you don't know Jesus. Yes, he knew him. He met him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, didn't he? Yeah. For 14 years, he served him without fail. He knew him. But he says, I want to know him more. I, I want to be more like him. You see, the more I know him, the more I want to emulate him. The, who is your hero? You know, th that's something that's missing a lot in our generation. Uh, we used to have some heroes. I mean, people that did good things. I mean, I can remember uh, when I was a very little boy, uh, one, one Christmas I, I got a Superman, um, a Superman kit. And I never, I never ran so fast. I never felt so much strength. And I put that cape on, no kidding. I jumped off our roof. <laughs> My mama told me that. I forgot about that. But I thought I could fly because of who was? I was Superman. Why? Because he was my hero. I'm going to tell you who Paul's hero was. Jesus Christ. He said, I want to be just like him. I want to respond to all my circumstances just like him. I want to respond to my enemies just like him. I want to respond to the devil just like him. I want to respond to temptation just like him. I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection. I want to have that intimate fellowship with him and, 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 and experience that power. Uh, I believe that's a spiritual enablement. The power that comes through his sufferings. That made, uh, being made conformable unto his death. I believe that conformity is what is a, a, a large part of Christianity. Somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, but I still do this, this, and this, and this. Well, you're not a Christian. You, you're not a Christian when you're living like the devil. You're not a Christian. Because a Christian or Christianity is conforming to Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to be involved in the sanctifying work of God in my life so that when other people see me, they see Christ in me. That's a powerful, powerful message. You know, brothers and sisters, I, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, um, Christianity is not a cross that I wear around my neck. It's not a bumper sticker that I put on my truck. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's the life that I choose to live in the face of a culture that despises him. That was Paul. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to rejoice in Christ the same way I'm rejoicing in him because of his saving work, because of what he accomplished for us that we could never accomplish for ourselves. 
If by any means, verse 11, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The apostle Paul was concerned not so much about the sufferings that he would endure in this physical body that is only here for a temporary period of time. He's concerned about the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ. The eternal consequences of unbelief. The eternal consequences of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ in his truth. There's an eternal aspect to this suffering that should motivate us. And, and we, we should never be comfortable with unbelief. Unbelief is the sin that does so easily beset us. And it's the condemning sin in the scripture of those who abide under the wrath of a holy God. When Paul is talking about rejoicing, he's talking about rejoicing in the salvation that is perfect and complete in Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he goes into the second point in the work of sanctification, the work of God sanctifying us. So the word sanctify means to separate from, uh, to uh, separate uh, from a common use to a holy or religious use. God does that in the life of his people. In verse 12, he says, not as though I had already attained. He's being honest here. He say, he's saying, I still have problems. I, I still have to deal with my temper. I, I still have to deal uh, with my own unredeemed uh, manhood. I haven't attained it yet. And by the way, we won't. We won't until we get to glory. Somebody says, well, I, I want to have a religion where uh, we don't sin anymore. I had a man tell me with an honest face. He, he, he told me, he said, I hadn't sinned in 12 years. I said, you just did. <laughs> the Bible says, if any man says he does not have sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. In other words, he's deceived himself into thinking that he, he's not a sinner. But brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul was so honest. with He was so honest about his own frailties, his own weaknesses. He, he, was honest. he says, not as though I've already attained it. I haven't reached that perfection or that maturity that I want to be just like Jesus. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. Listen to him. This is the great Apostle Paul. He says, I'm following after. I'm pursuing. I'm pressing or uh, aggressively pursuing. He's using the terminology of a runner. I, I know we have several athlete, athletes in our church, and you, you understand the, the significance and, and importance of, of uh, being a dedicated uh, 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 athlete in whatever that athletic uh, uh, involvement is you're going to do your very best and 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 how often when you go to uh, just say a track meet do you see some some runner getting to the getting over there to the uh, uh, the starting line with the other runners and they're wearing a house coat and uh, flip-flops on their feet do you ever see that brothers and sisters you'll never see that you won't because that runner knows that anything that would inhibit movement or motion is going to affect the way he runs his race. So the Apostle Paul, if you'll notice this, he, he uses that terminology often. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Remember, he's talking about running a race and being disqualified in that race. You can disqualify yourself in that race. Um. In Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 1, you know, he's, ta he's talking about the Christian race. He's, he's, he's calling us to a holy race. And he says, I'm following after. I'm pressing in my race. I'm, I'm running as hard and as dedicated as I can be. And much more can be said on that, but I've got to get to another point here. 
I follow after that I find my uh, that I may uh, apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. What he's saying, I, I need to lay hold of Christ, even as Christ has laid hold of me. And by the way, you'll never lay hold of Christ until he lays hold of you. But when Jesus lays hold of you, brother, you're laid hold of. Just pure and simple. He's, he's telling it like it is. He says in verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things that are before. See, uh, I believe that many times, and I'm speaking to you as a Christian, many times we allow our past to affect our present, to immobilize our present usefulness in the kingdom of God. We can. Uh, many of us can remember our failures and our faults and our weaknesses to the extent that we become paralyzed in our present. You ever done any of that? The apostle Paul could have. He could have allowed the persecution of the church. He could have allowed the stoning of Stephen. He could have allowed things like that to hinder him, to uh, uh, paralyze him in the work that God actually called him to do. But he says, I'm not going to do that. And neither can you or me. We can't allow the faults and the failures of our past to determine our usefulness in our present. Forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth unto those things that are before. Having a forward march, having a, a forward look. Past deeds can be a distraction to present pursuits of Jesus Christ. I'm doing it. I'm pressing forward. I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see, what he's saying in layman's terms is this. I want to be more and more like Jesus Christ every day. Every day I want to grow just a little bit more to be like Jesus every day. Even though I'll never completely be like Jesus in this world, I want to use that as my striving goal. I want to be, my, I want to be the kind of husband I need to be. I want to be the kind of wife Christ wants me to be. I want to be the church member Christ wants me to be. I want to be, I want to reflect Jesus Christ in every area of my life. That's what Paul is talking about. And this is a part of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that drives us to the Word of God. Let me tell you something, and I just want to be plain. I don't want to be hurtful or harmful, but I want to, if you're not reading the Bible every day, somebody says, well, I read my chapter uh, last week. I, I'm telling you, you're not growing. There's no way you're going to grow like that. You have to be very intentional about the study of God's Word. You, you have to make it an integral part of every day that you live. It's a foolish Christian that leaves his house without reading the scripture and having prayer. You're going to get decked. You're going to get wiped out. You're not, you're not putting on the armor. I mean, before you open that door, you look at those, you look at those feet and you say, Are you, do you have the gospel? <laughs> you, 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 you tighten that belt up and you say, Are you girt about with truth this morning? Do you have the helmet of salvation on? Do you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in your hand, boy? Do you have that shield of faith ready? It's a foolish person that leaves the door of his house and goes into this sinful world without being fully equipped. Every day. It's a day-to-day -day battle. Sanctification is a day-to-day -day battle. And Satan wants to overthrow it. 
He wants you to forget all about prayer. Forget all about the Bible. Forget all about church. Forget all about the gospel. You know why? Because then you're vulnerable. Then you are open to destruction. I'm just telling you like it is. The Apostle Paul is saying the way and manner we rejoice in the Lord is when we are dedicated and intentional in the sanctification of our soul. And the Apostle Paul, in his wisdom under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings us to our last point this morning. He's going to talk to us about glorification. He talks about his past. He talks about his present. Now he's going to talk about his future and your future. Uh, praise the Lord. He says, uh, in verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, there too we have already, uh, have already attained. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same things. Let there be unity among us. Brethren, be followers together of me. Now that word followers means uh, to imitate. I want you to imitate my example among you and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk. Here's a parenthetical clause. Here's a parenthesis that he puts in here. This is something that came to his mind and it hurt his heart when he thought about this. He says, you know, of whom I uh, many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now uh, tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and mind earthly things. And that's a parenthesis. In other words, something come, boy, to the mind of the Apostle Paul when he thought about these individuals that claimed to be Christians, and yet they were leading God's people in error. They were leading God's people away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And because of that, it hurt his heart. And he says, I, I, I want us to recognize that there's a battle going on. There's a battle for the heart. There's a battle for the soul. There's a battle for the mind. And the only way that we can win that battle is using the word of God as our guide. And he says, brethren, it's worth the battle. Verse 20 for our conversation or citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> oh, wow. Wait a minute, Paul. You know, I know something about your history, Paul. I, I know that you're a Roman citizen. I know the Bible teaches me that you were a Roman citizen. You were born in a free city of Tarsus uh, in a Greek-speaking home, raised with the Hebrew language, and trained up at the feet of Gamaliel, that great rabbi of Judaism. I know something about your past, Paul, and you said uh, you are a citizen of heaven? He says, yes, we are. We're citizens. We're ambassadors, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. We're citizens of heaven. We... Uh, we are under the domain of a foreign power. From whence also, hallelujah, heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop right there. I'm going to ask you a question, and it's, it's a sobering question, but it's very pertinent. When's the last time you looked up at the heaven and said, maybe today? Maybe today. When you have a pretty day like we did yesterday, it was such a pretty day, wasn't it? Look up into the heaven and say, maybe today. You see, the Apostle Paul lived every day like that. He was in that Roman prison. He was obviously struggling and suffering. But he did not allow his circumstances to obstacle obstigate or uh, to cover his faith or hinder his hope. I can just imagine him looking through that four-foot hole up in that ceiling in that prison saying, maybe today, maybe today. We are citizens of heaven from whence we look for the Savior. 
We're looking for him. We're living our life in the uh, anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's the nature of our calling. In verse 21, what is he going to do when he does come? Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He's going to change our vile body. The word vile there means body of humiliation. The word body there is that, 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 that sinful body is going to be exchanged for a glorified body. A body that doesn't sin anymore. Are you looking forward to that? I'm just asking. This means yes, yeah, this means no. I am. And the older I get, I'm just telling you the truth. The older I get, the more I'm looking forward to it. Because the older we get, the more we realize the weakness of this body. The in, uh, inability of this body. We can't do the things that we used to do. We, we, we don't function the same anymore. I think there's a lot of men in this auditorium that can say, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, Brother Jeff. Well, when Jesus Christ comes again, he's going to change this vile body. He promised he would. I love 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Behold, what manner of love is this that the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be made like him. That's what motivated the Apostle Paul, even in his struggle, even in his suffering, even in his bad circumstances. He was able to rejoice in the Lord because of that one promise that one day Jesus would come again and take him into a realm where there would be no more sin or sorrow or Satan. Are you looking forward to that, my brothers and sisters? Then you can rejoice. You can rejoice this morning in the salvation that ours in Christ. You can rejoice in the fact that he is sanctifying you and me. He is. He promised he would and he is. Don't give up. Don't give up. He's not giving up on you. Don't give up on him. You can rejoice in sanctification that we have through the Holy Spirit. And you can rejoice in the surety of the promise of the second coming from the Father. So, in essence... The Apostle Paul is saying we can rejoice in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.